The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Good morning and happy new year of the dragon. Congratulations on a coming year of prosperity, peace, and living into the might of the dragon. So new years and new beginnings always prompt dreaming and coming up with goals for the new year. I myself have a lot of goals I want to achieve in the coming year. You might have seen the San Francisco Contemplarium announcement. It's an exciting new ambitious initiative and there are so many things that I want to achieve and build and dream. So similar to what Kat was mentioning in her reflection, I feel I also have responsibilities to hurry to. And honestly, it feels nice to have them. The dragon story is interesting because it highlights, I think, that feeling of being a dragon and being in a race with a goal to hurry to, and the way that purpose can make you feel powerful and good and right. And you can imagine dragon gearing up from their resting place, setting their eyes on the finish line and just settling into that single-minded, eyes on the prize frame of mind as they set off on their race. But the story presents us with a question. What do, we, what do we do when we already have our purpose, but then something else comes up in the way? So in the story, Dragon ends up demonstrating the ideal, the bodhisattva ideal. Again, here he is with a goal, a destination, an objective. He's ready to win the race and claim his rightful place in the sun. But then they hear the village people crying for help and see Rabbit about to be dashed to pieces. And Dragon is faced with this moment of choice. We don't know for sure what Dragon was thinking in the moment, but you can imagine them hurtling through the air and from their high vantage point, they can see the finish line at the under, other end of the river. And ooh, it's so easy just to turn away and pretend that they can't hear or see the villager and that they can't hear or see the, the, the rabbit and continuing their hurrying onward. But Dragon ultimately chooses not to do that. Instead, Dragon looks, Dragon pays attention, stops, and decides that instead of winning, they're gonna help out. They decide that at the end of the day, it's worth giving up the personal win to help someone else who really needs them. And I think this story is a beautiful reminder. It reminds me of the way that I can get so caught up in the race that I forget to choose or skip by versus what I might want to do for others along the way. And the story invites me to take Dragon's example instead and to consider how Getting sixth place with dignity, or fifth place, might be better than getting first place, but losing your heart along the way.
<sighs> when I hear the story of Dragon and the Celestial Race, I think of the race that we all might be in, in our daily lives, in our goals from getting from point A to point B. And I think even more tangibly of getting from point A to point B physically. So I recently moved more into the center of the city and I've started to go to more things in person, coming off the long tail of the pandemic. And I'm starting to walk around a lot more and having this experience of, okay, I have to get from point A to point B by this time. And in my own race from point A to point B, Along the way, I bump into things that surprise and trouble me. I'm thinking in particular of one morning recently when I was coming home from the gym, I just finished a workout, and I was running late for a Zoom meeting at home, so I wanted to get straight home by the time the Zoom meeting started. But along the way, I noticed myself passing by folks who didn't look like they were in great condition in the streets, folks who seemed like they'd be cold, uncomfortable, folks who are just hanging out in conditions that really nobody deserves to be living in, and folks who are trapped in this systemic, ongoing, everyday suffering and injustice that we encounter every day. And so when I hear the story of the dragon's race, I think about and zoom in on this one moment in my own daily life where I'm walking down the sidewalk, running my own race to get home to the Zoom meeting, when something else presents itself to me, some evidence of ongoing suffering and injustice, something that's calling for some kind of action, calling for my attention, my compassion calling for me to stop and say, this is not okay. But it's at this moment when I think about this sidewalk second, this is where the dragon ideal portrayed in the story seems so far away. Because let's be honest, dragon is a mythical creature and I am human. Dragon is this huge, long beast that somehow flies with no wings. Dragon has magical powers over and reigns the rivers and oceans. And similarly, mythically, dragon has this superhuman ability to give up the race, or at least the first place that he can easily win, in order to stop and rescue Rabbit or save the village. I can't help but think that if Dragon were me in that situation, walking down the sidewalk, Dragon would know what to do. Dragon would stop for every person, every time, somehow make the room and the space to help everyone they encounter along the way, and at the end of the day, still make it on time to wherever they need to be. But what about me? If I think, okay, Let's not be in this realm of mythical creatures for a second. Let's be in the realm of reality. It sounds like an unrealistic ideal to actually literally stop and help every time I'm walking down the sidewalk. 
And don't get me wrong, I know that there are practical ways to be involved in alleviating the suffering that we're seeing in the streets here in San Francisco, and there's amazing work that this congregation is doing. Just as one example, with the winter shelter starting tomorrow, with huge amounts of resources and energy and volunteer effort, that does make a powerful and important difference. But I'm talking about in this moment, walking down the sidewalk, when I don't have a designated volunteer role to play, when I'm not on a shift, when in fact I have another responsibility to hurry home to, I think in an emergency I trust myself to do the right thing and check in or take some sort of action, but what about the countless times that I witness this everyday suffering and injustice around me? And the fact is, in that moment, I'm just a human. Unlike Dragon, I live in an experience not of undeniable might and power, but of temporary and fragile purpose, of subordination to other priorities, of smallness often, of insignificance. What is my mere self supposed to be doing here? How can my mere self take this on? I live with stress, I live with fear, I live with busyness, uncertainty, I run into compassion fatigue. I can't fly. I have human skin. I don't have dragon skills. And I've also experienced what the danger of ignoring the reality of my human limitedness can look like. There are ways that helping others while sacrificing my own journey has been dangerous and unhealthy. And I know that there are times in my own life where helping other people around me was overwhelming and frankly impossible to sustain. So whatever the situation might be, the hesitation to always be the dragon, when in reality, we're not all powerful like the dragon, I think that hesitation is justified. And so I feel this need to protect myself, often perhaps to look away, to keep my head down, or staring straight ahead, hardening my heart, because at the end of the day, I'm not a mythical beast, I'm a human. So I have this dilemma. On the one hand, I'm inspired by the story of Dragon. I'm inspired by the mythical possibility of helping from a place of power and confidence, of having this ability to save someone who's always ready to help anyone and anything in need, regardless of what I might be doing at the moment. But on the other hand, I know the reality of being human of turning away, of retracting inwardly, of trying to avoid seeing or acknowledging the suffering of others in order to protect my own heart. I was looking for some insight on this tension between this inspiring dragon impulse and this human one. So I turned to advice to two people I admire and respect deeply for living the kinds of lives here in San Francisco that really speak to this dilemma. One was my friend, John Brett, 
the faithful and fabulous minister with the San Francisco Night Ministry. When I accompanied him on a night ministry walk in the Tenderloin last August to provide spiritual support to folks on the street, just learning what he's doing, he, uh, he introduced me to something he called the night ministry saunter. So it's a slow, relaxed walk that communicates a ministry of presence. It's the direct opposite of the race that we've been talking about. So when you're doing the night ministry saunter, there's nowhere to go, nowhere else you're supposed to be. And as John recently told me, there's so much in life that communicates that we're busy. We're too busy for connection. The night ministry saunter counters that. It signals friendliness, openness. It resists what John calls the violence of looking away. That small, repetitive act, when one person experiences it over a period of time with the majority of people they encounter, creates this invisibility cloak over their humanity. And what John pointed out was that when we look away, not only do we rob the other person of one of our deepest human needs of being seen, we rob ourselves of our humanity by numbing ourselves and choosing not to honor one of our deepest human needs to connect. But I asked John recently, what about when you're not in the collar? When you're not doing the night ministry saunter? When you're a civilian like us? Because you really do have to get from point A to point B. What do you do then? And what stuck with me most from John's reply was itself a beautiful question. He asked, how do we keep our hearts soft and present and vulnerable to the potential of transformation in a world where so much is asking us to protect and harden? While being aware of the real dangers out there, physical and emotional, how do we practice being human in a world that wants us to resist being human? In seeking some answers to this question, I also turned to our very own Carmen Barsadi, co-founder of The Faithful Fools and the Tenderloin, worship associate here, who works with and for folks on the street and with a long history uh, with this congregation, UUSF. Uh, in the fall, I did a street retreat with her and the Faithful Fools, where we took the time to wander the streets of the Tenderloin, to do, as the Faithful Fools mission statement says, discover our common humanity on the streets. And the purpose of the street retreat was to really notice the dialogue between ourselves, our own lives and needs and experiences, together with what we're experiencing outside of ourselves as we walk the streets. So Carmen called it a mirror, a mirror to our reactions and responses to what we were seeing and allowing us to start to ask how we can cultivate a way of being in the world where we pay attention 
to that two-way dialogue. It was a really remarkable experience for me, the street retreat, where for the first time, rather than rushing through the tenderloin to get from point A to point B, I was able to look at and name some of the feelings I was experiencing as I took my time. Fear, discomfort, shame, disgust even and begin the dialogue with how my inner world could be in relationship with the outside world that I was seeing. But then I still had this question, what about when we're not on a street retreat? Recently I asked Carmen the same question I posed to John as someone who lives and breathes the life of a faithful fool in the Tenderloin. What do you do in these moments when you have some other responsibility to hurry to? when you really do have to get from point A to point B, but you see something calling for your compassion, your attention. And of course, Carmen is walking by folks living on the street all the time. For every person she engages, she told me, there are hundreds in a day that she doesn't. It's just sheer impossibility. Of course, in an emergency, she trusts herself to check in if something doesn't look right, if there's an emergency. But uh, knowing that she'll do this is important. But beyond that, in kind of the everyday experience of seeing the suffering and distress at that steady level, direct interaction isn't always the response that Carmen can give. So how, I asked, do you deal with passing by as a witness to this ongoing suffering and injustice? And one of the pieces of insight that Carmen offered really stuck with me. Some days, she said, she doesn't have it in her to care, but that's okay. What's important is to be honest about it. Often, she just has to say, Right now, I can't respond to this. I can't take it in. But even when she does that, she will try to pause and give her heart some attention and ask something like, is what I'm seeing still not okay with me? My heart might be tired right now, but is this temporary? Or is it a more permanent crustiness that is taking over? Am I still feeling a disturbance around what I'm seeing, even as I can't respond to it at this time? Or has it begun to be replaced with indifference? And what I took away from this for myself is that sometimes we can't do this right now. I have to turn away. But perhaps what I'm learning from Carmen is that even when I do do that, I can still remind myself of the feeling that this suffering is not right. That I can choose not to respond in the moment when I'm not emotionally able to deal with it, while still refusing to harden myself to that disturbance in my heart that seeing these things brings up. I'm reminded of 
Mencius's story of the child falling into the well. Mencius was an early Confucian philosopher who lived during the Warring States period in China, around 300 BCE. And one of the key concepts of Mencius's philosophy was that human nature is fundamentally good. I know it's a little foreign to these parts, but human nature is fundamentally good. And as evidence of this, he describes this thought experiment in which you see a child sitting on the edge of a well, playing, and then all of a sudden, the child loses their balance and are about to fall into the well. And Mencius says that in that moment, you can't help but feel this rush, some compulsion to help, some disturbance in your heart that moves you to action. And it's this sprout of feeling that is there. And it might be hidden for whatever reason, or it might be small, it might be slight, it might be the tiniest feeling, but it's there. And Mencius says that to cultivate this essence of this sprout of a feeling, that is the very nature of cultivating your humanity, or ren in Chinese. Carmen and John's experiences remind me of this careful cultivation of this sprout of humanity, of ren within us, and the importance of keeping it alive. And as Mencius goes on to explain, this ren, when you give it the care and love it needs, it grows into this power that's the true might in our relationships with others and with the world as we go about living our lives. And to be honest, it was relieving to hear John and Carmen's experiences and find out that they weren't invincible, scaled dragons. They intimately knew the fragility of our humanness and the importance of protecting ourselves. And they reminded me that I have every right and every prerogative and indeed responsibility to take care of myself. And also, at the same time, I can remember that a deep, deep fundamental way to care for myself is to care for that tender sprout of humanity inside of me. For my heart to stay soft and hurt and sensitive to the injustice and suffering that I witness. So in that race I run, returning to that moment on the sidewalk, if I can't help in that moment, in that time, maybe I don't need to justify it or explain it away or harden my heart against the suffering to make it okay for me to do that. If that's what I need, I'm going to maybe at least look. And if I don't have to do anything right then and there, I want to keep alive at least that part of me that is disturbed and is calling out and saying this is wrong, that things shouldn't be like this. Because keeping that part of myself alive is itself a deep, deep way of caring for me, for my humanity.
I still think the story of the dragon is inspiring as a superhuman ideal. We need our heroes. We need our bodhisattvas. But you and I, we were never meant to be mythological creatures. We were meant to be human. And when I think about the might and the power of the dragon that we celebrate today, I still think that we live that dragon power, not through transcending our humanity, but by living into it, by embracing our limits and our soft human skin and our soft human hearts, because that's the very thing that will give us sustenance, the basis for the work that does need to be done, not by dragons, but by humans, not in one race, but in the long haul, not just on the streets, but in the many, many ways the world is calling out for help in our personal lives, in our public ones. So, as we welcome the Year of the Dragon, I invite us to consider how our might, how our power, how our dragon nature is there in all the times that we can save others. Yes, and that is so important and you should volunteer for the winter shelter. But also that that dragon power is still there in the softness with which we hold our hearts, the humanity that we cultivate in ourselves, even in all the times that we can't help. So to that power in our finitude, in our humanity, in our softness, blessed be. Amen. Every few months, a meme gets circulated on Facebook about a minister who has been assigned to a church. Unlike Unitarian Universalists, there are churches who don't get to choose their ministers. He dresses like an unhoused person and walks around before Sunday worship to see how members of his new congregation will respond. Most people give him cold stares and dirty looks, and the ushers actually tell him that he has to move to the back of the sanctuary. When the time comes during the service to introduce the new minister, everyone applauds and looks around eagerly to see who the new person is until they see the apparently unhoused man in the back stand up and walk to the pulpit. He recites the Beatitudes as written in the book of Matthew, where Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Whatever you did for the least of my siblings, you did for me. And then the minister tells the congregation how badly they failed to live up to Jesus' teachings until they weep in shame. Cool story. And it is just a story, never happened. The story exists so that left-leaning folks can share it on social media and feel superior to certain kinds of Christians. However, while the story in that meme is made up, according to Snopes, it is inspired by real-life research experiment conducted 
at Princeton University in 1970. Seminary students were sent on assignments designed to take them past an actor sitting slumped in a doorway who moaned and coughed as they walked by. What researchers found was that the more urgent the assignment was, and therefore the more in a hurry the student was, the less likely they were to offer help to the man in apparent need. Now, I generally trust Snopes, but the story in the meme and the real-life research experiment seem to me like two different things. The made-up story is a low bar. If the test is to not be mean to someone who is perceived as different, less fortunate, then generally I'll easily pass that test. In contrast, when I read about the real-life experiment, I felt a jolt of recognition. Because if the test is whether or not I will stop to help someone in apparent need when I am in a hurry to fulfill other responsibilities, then I'm afraid that the honest answer is nine times out of 10, I would fail that test. I know that is true because I have walked by people on the sidewalk telling myself that I would stop, but I'm in a hurry. I'm late for an appointment or a meeting, or I have too many errands and my hands are full. The thing is though, in this society, we are almost always in a hurry. There is almost always something that we need to do. If these seminary students in the study were asked, what's more important, the human being who is in need or completing an assignment on time? Most likely, those aspiring ministers would say that, of course, the human being is more important, as would I. But mainstream society trains us to be accountable to deadlines, not to each other. In Mahayana Buddhism, the aspirational ideal is to be a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is always quick to help those in need. At various times, my Buddhist teachers have taught us to intentionally keep our hands free so that at any given moment, our hands are free to offer aid and to leave the house earlier so that we have more time and are not in a hurry. And of course, to assess and prioritize what is most important to us, letting less important things go. In the story for all ages, Dragon was very much in a hurry and the consequences of delay were significant for them. I'll note that if Dragon had started the race earlier, then they would not have been in that predicament. But they didn't, so they had to choose, and they chose to help those in need. Dragon was acting like a bodhisattva. So for this Lunar New Year, and I've always felt lucky to have two New Years to celebrate and thus two chances at new beginnings, this Lunar New Year, my resolution is to be more like Dragon.